on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. I believe we have Dick Gordon on the line. Hello, Dick. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good to talk to you. It's been a while since we last spoke. Yes. So, as you're a seasoned veteran to Biota Live, you know we have some news and notes, then we can get into this evening's topic. If you... Oh, we have another caller on the line. That's Jeffrey. Oh, hello, Jeffrey. Good to Hi, talk Tom. to you. We can talk a little bit about spiders. <laughs> Have you no, had a chance to listen to last week's podcast? Or last, sorry. No, last I podcast. haven't. No, uh, I haven't. So when we get to that in the news and notes, I'll, uh, I'll defer to you for your ideas with regards to that. But if folks would like to participate, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. There is a live chat session that I'm just starting. If you're listening in live via Blog Talk Radio and you don't want to call a U.S. number, a number of bits of news and notes. The next episode, Friday, November 14th, 8 p.m. Pacific, Surviving an Artificial Life Winter. With the current situation of the international economy, I've been receiving emails and occasional uh, tweets and things on Facebook with regards to what will happen to artificial life as uh, particularly the tech economy starts to drop away if it hasn't already happened? And I have my own views with regards to this, and I know a number of others in the community have views. Uh, I've actually talked about this a little bit in the past two podcasts, both with Gerald de Jung and with Bruce Damer, in terms of what we can learn from the 1999 Biota 3 video uh, versus the way things are now. But that will be the topic on November 14th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Surviving an Artificial Life Winter. Graytham News. Well, Graytham Boston will meet this Monday, November 3rd at 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Asgard Irish Pub at 350 Massachusetts Avenue, Central Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts. The uh, presenter this month will be Dr. Shivakumar Wistathan, who will be talking about, let me read the abstract here, the ideal delivery problem in evolutionary development algorithms. We have a third caller. Hello, third caller. Hello there, Tom. It's Gerald. Ah, Dr. Sagan, good to speak to you this evening. At 4 a.m., I might add. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the times have changed. Hi. Who's here today? Jeffrey. And we have Dick Gordon on the line as well. Okay, hi, hi Dick. Hi, how are you? Good. <laughs> Pretty early for you. I'm getting ready to go to bed here. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, to finish up the uh, Grace and Boston news, uh, a wide variety of interesting stuff that this doctor is going to present with regards to um, the distinction between genotype, phenotype mapping on evolutionary adaptation. And it looks like an interesting talk with regards to computer simulation and the insights that he got from this. I received correspondence today from Justin Lyon. In fact, I've received uh, on and off again correspondence from Justin Lyon. I was hoping to have him on the call this evening, but he's still in Iraq. Um, he's been going backwards and forwards. Do you, do you track Justin's movements, Gerald? 
Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I've, I think I've seen pretty well the same number of emails as you have. seems to be a, a fascinating project that he's connected with in Iraq currently. Well, the project, the public project that I can know about, I'm sure he's doing other things in Iraq as well. But the American University and the Deputy Prime Minister, who apparently is a Biota fan, I have to confirm that with Justin Lyon, um, but he has a degree in simulation mathematics from the University of Liverpool, and he's also the Deputy Prime Minister of Iraq. So he may be a future guest on Bios Alive, but certainly I'm hoping to get Justin on in the near future to talk about... He said that he's been heavily evangelizing artificial life throughout Iraq. So we may have future consumers of the collective uh, book project that Dick and I have been a part of, because I think some of that vends into what's going on in Iraq currently. Wouldn't you say, Dick? Well, that's wonderful news if they can actually start thinking about things that aren't bread and butter issues. It's in the uh, Kurdish part of Iraq, and they seem to, I mean, I would have thought that it would be a, you know, a central target point, but they seem to be operating with relative security currently, and hopefully we'll hear more information from Justin when he's uh, near a phone again. Um, but yeah, certainly a shout out to Justin Lyon and uh, what he's doing evangelizing biota in uh, far-flung parts of the world currently. Dick, I now have in my news and notes, divine action and natural selection is out. And I have been, uh, this evening, perusing through the text. I'm quite overwhelmed uh, currently, having read, um, well, having skimmed through the first half of it. Uh, Can you you just give some outline to folks (laughs) listening in? Outline. Well, let's start with how much you were expected to read in one evening. It's uh, 1,069 pages long. <laughs> okay, and it has, what does it have? 45 chapters. So uh, basically, it's a, it's it's an interesting book. Uh, what happened uh, is that the the way I got involved is this. Joseph Seckbach asked me to write a chapter for it, and I apparently. Uh, turned in the first chapter uh, that he got for the book. And then a year ago, he and I met in an astrobiology conference. We just happened to both be there. And he confessed to me that the publisher reneged on the contract. And uh, and this was after all the chapters had been turned in. Mm. So uh, it was a rather curious situation. So he asked me to, if I could help him rescue the situation. So I said, okay, I'll try find another publisher uh, but with one condition and that is that there be dialogue in the book and uh, in the course of this we ended up adding a couple of chapters getting an artificial life perspective on the questions of uh, what is life, origin of life and questions like this so it was uh, kind of fun uh, bringing in this perspective uh, uh, into the debate between creationists and scientists and as I've scanned through it this evening, I mean, for folks listening in, I think I dialogued maybe four or five chapters. And so my exposure to the book was only relatively small up until this evening. But as I read through, as I scanned through the first 500-odd pages, the thing that dawned on me was that this was something that could be used from anything from kind of engineering on one extreme, because lots of engineering courses now have philosophy and these kind of broader things oh, right. as part okay. of the degree, all the way through to um, quite orthodox religious studies. I mean, it has it has something from that entire spectrum. I mean, there are oh, yes. there's, the, the surveying is phenomenal. And in terms of potential, um, and I'm thinking maybe third year, fourth year, undergraduate and postgraduate related reading material, I can see a number of courses that would selectively choose from the book you know, maybe half a dozen or a dozen of the chapters for their particular courses. Do you get that feeling as well, Dick? I hadn't thought of it that pers- in that perspective, but uh, yes, uh, you know, the the amazing thing about it, in a way, is that the uh, you know, there's a general notion that uh, there's a battle between creationism and science. But if you look at this book, you will find many quite legitimate scientists in various fields uh, who uh, are in their, in various degrees, in various ways, are creationists. And uh, there's a full spectrum of people rather than just two extremes, which is the way it's usually uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, positioned. Uh, you know, for example, you mentioned the astrophysicist. The astrophysicist just retired as head of the Vatican Observatory. Uh, 
and uh, does quite legitimate astrophysical research. Uh, and I assure you, he's also a devout Catholic from his uh, from his writings. So uh, you you get a whole spectrum. Now, the other thing we did in the book uh, is the debate between creationism and science is usually phrased in terms of uh, United States Bible Belt Protestantism uh, versus whatever you know, uh, and uh, what you find is that actually uh, every major religion has its creationists in it, probably. And uh, I've also come to the opinion that if you take most people and you scratch the surface, you'll find that they're fundamentally creationists. Uh, and the, I guess to put it one way, the lessons of Darwinism have far from permeated our civilization, no matter what religion we're talking about. I mean, certainly scanning through, my sense was um, particularly the, the Muslim creationists, the fellow in particular who um, stopped Roy Plotnick from contributing. I Reading his text, I got the sense that um, there was a fellow, I've, I've forgotten the fellow's name, he's a Turkish fellow, uh, who wrote yeah. Plotnick when we were discussing with Roy about participating. He said, well, if this guy's on the book, I really don't want to be a part of it. And having read his chapter... I got a chilled sense that Roy had actually had some interaction with this fellow in the past. I do get the sense reading through, um, I mean, this is really a question to, to Gerald more than anyone. I mean, Dawkins does do a surveying of uh, a, a wide variety of kind of fundamentalist religions. He isn't just sticking with regards to Protestantism. Oh, you mean his book, about, his book about religion? I, I haven't the, read that book, so I don't know what's in it. I mean, do you think that's a, a fair assessment, Gerald, with regards to Dawkins in particular? What assessment exactly? That he just sticks with the U.S., um, a particular uh, Bible belt of U.S. Protestantism as, as uh, you know, explained it as. Yeah, I wasn't talking about Dawkins in particular. I was thinking more like uh, uh, the uh, people associated with uh, the Discovery Institute in Seattle, for example. Now there's uh, there's some uh, uh, you know there's extra focus on that of course for a number of reasons first of all because uh, the United States is uh, is an exceptionally religious nation considering the uh, you know its economic uh, situation in the world. I kind of disagree with that. You see, I, I think when you come to the question of mechanisms evolution of evolution and fundamental belief that we are evolved creatures and evolved through the sequence of uh, organisms that uh, is laid out fairly well now in uh, phylogenetic trees. I don't think, I suspect 99% of people on Earth don't really swallow that. Now, by, I don't mean they, they wouldn't say they'd agree with it, but I don't think they live their lives as if that's the case. Yeah, but, you know, even, for example, I know it's a difficult subject here, but uh, politics. In in a lot of other countries, uh, you know, it's not uh, it's not an issue really so much. I mean, if you look at, for example, even here, where the uh, the main party is actually called Christian Democrat, but if the uh, if the what, what the country are you calling from? The Netherlands. Netherlands, okay. And uh, if if the uh, if the, the 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 prime minister here were to you know, say something in religious terms. In religious terms, it would be it would be sort of considered, you know, uh, not not really appropriate. And that's been the case for for a long time because it it sort of alienates. Meanwhile, in the United States, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, religious toned political discussion. Well, that's curious because you see, I just got a uh, a freebie mailed from the Netherlands called. Uh uh, Ism Review International from the International Institute for the Study of Islam in the Modern World, uh, and uh, uh, this is obviously a, uh, a propaganda piece sent out by uh, somebody who's got a lot of money to send this to all the professors in Canada. I guess uh, it's a bit, it's a slick magazine, and uh, it makes us wonder about what's going on in the Netherlands. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Having lived in the U.S. and also when I first moved to the U.S., I stayed with a fellow and his family 
who were uh, quite strong creationists, and I followed their um, mm -hmm. hyper-politicization as they became even stronger creationists. I attended the fellow's wedding um, only a few months ago. But my sense is that these are very isolated pockets uh, within the U.S. And in, you know, in cities, you would Where find... Yeah. Oh, okay, go finish up. I mean, I think what happens in the U.S. is really a caricature, and I find this, particularly with regards to my family in Australia who's never been to the U.S., that it's very difficult to get a sense of what the U.S. is actually about remotely. The reason that there are, um, you know, political icons or caricatures is because there there is very tight groupings of money, which is one of the points that I make in, in Dick's book, that is funneled up towards these organizations, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the people that are contributing the money in all places believe exactly what the folks at the top are saying. There is almost a, a kind of monastic view with regards to this, which I think is completely false. To a certain degree, there's a, there's a skewed view of the United States because probably, uh, uh, probably because of eight years of Bush, but... Uh, you know, on the other hand, the um, the, the whole notion and the, the phenomenon of a mega church is something that that you know it's characteristically United States. You don't find mega churches around Europe, I don't think. Uh, how about like, the Roman know. Catholic Church? Well, what's yeah, the okay. what what old church? Like, the U.S. doesn't <laughs> have any large churches, though. It has a large number of small ones. Exactly. Yeah, I know. But I mean, <laughs> these these huge buildings and and uh, and you know, essentially. Uh, Preachers in uh, you know um, uh, on front of thousands of people at the same time. I don't think that really versus, happens. Versus the, the cathedrals of Europe. I mean, we are talking over each other, but I mean, Europe has yeah. a number of quite stunning Gothic cathedrals all over it. Mm -hmm. Yes, which has fine. a very strong visual <laughs> impact when you go into European cities. But I want to bring Jeffrey into the conversation okay. because he's in the process of defecting from the U.S. by all accounts, <laughs> possibly. Possibly. I'm in Vancouver at the moment, which is just over the border. So what's your theory with regards to all this, Jeffrey? Oh, well, you know, I, I, there's definitely a lot of the churchiness in, in the U.S., uh, for sure, but there's also a lot of the other, and I think it's, a, it's really a distinction between different parts of the U.S. Um, having lived in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and San Francisco, most of my professional life, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a different side of the... Uh, you know, the equation. Um, so, um, but I think religion does play a, a large part in, in American politics and American life, in, in, at least in the media, whether or not it's really a part of our daily lives. For, for most of us, I'm not sure. I think increasingly, and being part of new media, I find this very strongly, the, the old media is, you know, it's, it's increasingly becoming meaningless. And this is actually a great battle that comes through this election primarily, that the two major parties have put a lot of money into old media, completely neglected new media aside from, you know, tacitly touching it on occasion, much to their peril. And I think the interesting thing with regards to when people talk about the media in the context of old and new in terms of politics and uh, religion in particular I think will be addressed probably within the next two election cycles in terms of the emergence of new media. Now, you could argue that YouTube and these kind of things were part of that as well. But it's certainly an interesting phenomenon that is in the process of change currently. Yeah, Obama is spending, putting ab advertisers in video games, apparently. Certainly. Politics is, of course, you know, you're trying to uh, address the masses because they vote. So, you know, they're... The masses are most easily addressed in a broadcast medium, and the old media are broadcast. Mm -hmm. But people are increasingly not watching the old media. Yeah, I, I still mean, think you've got a significant population of people who, who really do, and and there's a lot available. I mean, I don't watch, uh, of course, the uh, the American media directly at all, but uh, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube, of course, and and every little uh, snippet you've ever seen on TV is on YouTube in, in a few minutes anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the nature of a snippet and everything that's on TV are, in fact, at opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, what, what you see in terms of snippets is, in fact, again, particularly with regards to U.S. television, a caricature. I mean, whilst I used to watch PBS in the U.K., my feeling is that every snippet that I see that my family from Australia who's never set foot in the U.S. sends me on YouTube, 
you know, is in no way characterizes the kind of viewing that I do. Moving on from this, Divine Action, Natural Selection, a fantastic book, out on Amazon very shortly. Are you tracking how it's coming over to the U.S. and Europe, Dick? Are you tracking how people can get copies well, of it? Oh, well, physically, the paperback is scheduled to arrive in North America uh, mid-December, about December 15th. The hardback was just printed, but it's not... Yeah, you know, they send it by book. These are heavy books. <laughs> <laughs> from Singapore. Jan- yeah, from Singapore. We'll arrive in January. You know, we're hunting around for people who want to publish reviews of it. <laughs> so an interesting, an interesting idea that I had, particularly looking at the way Dawkins publicized The God Delusion, speaking of American media, was actually to go on uh, American talk radio and uh, the Fox News Channel and these kind of outlets and actually have a, an instigatory kind of dialogue. And that was relatively successful for him with the God Delusion. I mean, my well, understanding... Of course, but he's already a visible scientist. Do you think so? On Fox News? On... Uh, yeah. I mean, if you've got, you got an into Fox, fine. <laughs> you know? Certainly. Certainly. They might be interested in this book. But, see, I think the, the point I'm trying to make, though, is uh, if you... What this book does that goes beyond the previous books, uh, oh, for example, uh, here, I've got one right here, which is Debating Design by Dembski and Roos. Okay? Uh, Dembski is a, uh, an American creationist, and Roos is an American philosopher of biology. And uh, they've got a book that claims to be Debating Design. Okay? Uh, I've read it cover to cover, and there's no debate in the book at all. <laughs> okay. What it is is a set of chapters of people talking past each other. Certainly. One will make a statement. Another in their chapter will make a, st- a statement that contradicts it, but they never discuss it, never discuss, well, what about this contradiction? <laughs> okay. We try to achieve some of that in this book. Uh, and the other thing which, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have Jews and Muslims and uh, Catholics and even some Protestants in in the book, uh, and some even even some artificial life developers that are completely and, and godless and, and wandering. Yes, <laughs> who had some rather surprising points of view. I never would have thought uh, in advance. You know. You Do you also have representation from the from the non-religious or not? Oh yeah, you've got, yes, all, we have, you've got uh, all the religions represented. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We've got Prothero giving a nice chapter on uh, the. Uh, the evidence for transitional fossils, uh, which is often an argument used uh, used by creationists, uh, we have uh, uh, Tanner Edis, who uh, uh, is a tur- uh, uh, Turk, who argues against Muslim uh, creationism. He's in Kansas, though. He's he's not a Turk in Turkey. He's a Turk in America. Well, but he, yes, I so. <laughs> he keeps well, I'm, 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 I'm always called an Australian, and I think it's perfectly artificial. I mean, my, my, the thing that I liked about Tanner is that he's all throughout the book, and sometimes he's he's the voice of reason, and sometimes he's the voice of kind of wandering ideas. And I mean, the, it, yeah. I'm not sure how many things he dialogues on, but he he seems to be in all the right places at all but, the right time. But he was also a little disturbed about my chapter, which criticized the book he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> As you might be. <laughs> okay, so uh, you know it's uh, we 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 go around in many many uh, we go around the questions many times in many directions in here. Now it's very incomplete. Uh, if uh, we could have used another year of dialogue, and the book would have been twice as big. <laughs> so that that begs the question whether a sequel is the. <laughs> uh, well, let's see where this one goes. <laughs> Give it a month or two. Certainly. Uh, the the thing is that the questions is I, I we had a couple of people uh, who refused to write for the book that when we asked them because they didn't want to appear in the same book with creationists certainly. and the well not certainly you see the problem is that I I might have shared that attitude a few years ago except that the Entry of creationists into what you might call the academy, uh, despite you know, first of all, it's an historical fact. If you because science rose out of people who were uh, 
trying to study nature to to uh, to glorify God. I mean that was that was part of the original idea of science going back to the uh, Middle Ages and 1600s, 1700s. But uh, in the modern context, it is Cambridge University Press itself which not only published this book, Debating Design, between Dembski, uh, who is a creationist, and Michael Roos and the chapters they put together, but they also published a, a monograph by Dembski. Uh, so the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. Uh, and uh, we have to debate and confront creationists in the academy now, not, uh, 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 not pretend that they're marginalized. Well, whilst I don't want to talk too much with regards to Roy Plotnick's particular objection, certainly I found reading the fellow's chapter who Roy objected to specifically was not actually part of the broader dialogue associated with the book, and I found it actually quite chilling, his response to Tanner specifically, and the fact that he hadn't actually embodied the whole spirit of the book with regards to uh, sometimes swift but at least honest dialogue. And yeah. that was my, my point with regards to... Uh, to Roy specifically. Now, now the three fellows from Turkey who are, you know, very they are probably the most extreme creationists in the book. However, it's curious reading what they write because basically they have perfected the skill of scouring the scientific literature for doubt expressed by scientists. And any doubt expressed by a scientist is amplified into a creationist point of view. And they're they're absolutely superb at this skill, <laughs> and they flabbergast the number of people with how good they are at it. Unless you understand the claim from authority, I mean that seems to be the the whole root well, of their argument is that they find one person and then say this person is an authority and thus you know oh, QED. Course, yes, <laughs> yes, but but uh, and in fact that's a curious point of view because you see. Many many creationists find the justification for their views in science. Now we can argue whether they're misreading the science, though. But uh, but the curious thing sociologically is that they appeal to the authority of science to justify mm -hmm. their points of view. And this go I, I'm reading a history of the origin of science uh, uh, of Western science now, and it's uh, one of the themes that is continuously there is trying to keep science, or what was originally called natural philosophy, the handmaiden of religion. Uh, mm. In other words, you know, theology comes first and, 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 and uh, the uh, uh, science second. Uh, but this is a very uh, uh, dangerous, from the point of view of people who want, want to maintain their, their views, it's a very dangerous balance because that handmaiden can, uh, can get out of hand. And you get this opposite effect then where the people in religion appeal to science for their justification. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really fascinating to watch this play. And, and the other thing that's become clear, the, the more history I read, is that these arguments are thousands of years old of and course. haven't been settled. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they've sold a lot of books now, and they'll sell a lot of books into the future. No doubt on that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Moving from one great debate to another great debate, we started some fiery controversy through the Biota Conversations mailing list last episode about spiders. And I'm not sure if you, I think yeah. you were on. I think you heard the call live, Dick. But certainly, I wanted to talk to Jeffrey initially because we were hoping to have him on to talk about his own ideas in spider simulation. So, as you didn't have the benefit of hearing the last episode, Gerald, would you like to summarize it for Jeffrey? Um, let me see. Well, my, my point of view was that, uh, you know, that somehow, uh, however, it's, it's something we have to discover, but how, however, a spider with its tiny little brain is able to build a web. Uh, and, and uh, you know, there are a number of examples of animals that uh, extend their uh, sort of existence into the environment around them. And somehow, without uh, you know spiders going to spider university, they uh, they have this uh, innate ability to build a fairly complicated uh, structure to support their uh, their lifestyles. And uh, it's fascinating to think about what uh, how how it would be possible that the genetics would more or less uh, you know directly build the the, the neurons that that do the job because there's probably not much learning involved. 
Well, well, look, can I can I interject to something? Uh, when I was a uh, a cruel teenager, I did a little experiment experiment with an ant, and what I did is I I placed a ring of kerosene around the ant, and so the ant was perfectly safe in the middle of this ring, except maybe for the fumes, and the ant kept testing the would walk up to the ring because it was inside the ring and it would back off and it tried this in every which direction it could and then all of a sudden the thing walks through the ring of kerosene wow okay i was startled <laughs> you know it you know i mean you know we can anthropomorph uh, anthropos on it and say it came to the conclusion it was trapped and it had to take the risk of going through the hell of walking through this this obviously noxious liquid, not knowing whether what was on the other side or whether it would get out. Okay, and it did so. Uh, so it's it solved the problem that I had confronted it with, and I doubt it's a problem any other ant has ever seen. It's also, it's also sort of just uh, you know reacting to stimuli. We were going to hear about from Jeffrey on this, so Jeffrey, let us hear it. Well, um, I, I agree uh, that the, that we were anthrop- that maybe it's easy to anthropomorphize the ant if that's the right word. Yeah. But uh, it's probably just it's probably just going through a very simple algorithm uh, where it's it's desire to 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 get away from whatever it's in. Uh, got high enough that it decided to plunge through the flames. Um, I would assume it. I would assume it's a simple algorithm, and it wasn't going through a lot of logical decisions. And it, but as far as the uh, ant, uh, the spider web, I think uh, I can't remember. I can't remember where I read this, but um, if you think about the spider's web as similar to the design on a seashell or the design on a on a on an animal's uh, fur or something like that, it's a, it's a design. It's a pattern that occurs in nature um, and the spider happens to build it rather than it, it emerging or emerging uh, as a as a as a pattern so it's just it's just another pattern among other patterns that nature creates uh, maybe if you think of it that way it might uh, it might help you it, it's a different way of thinking about it I think so what happens when you give the spider caffeine or LSD well I've never done that experiment myself but I've seen some pictures, and they're pretty interesting uh, designs. Yeah, yeah. I, I sent a list of papers uh, that on disrupting spiders, uh, you know, dr- drugging them in various ways. And most, most of the time, you don't want to waste it on the spiders. <laughs> so, following uh, last, following the last podcast, uh, and I don't think anyone's represented my views currently, but I won't necessarily say uh, say them again. But following the last podcast, we received a lot of correspondence because my view initially, and somewhat naively, was that spiders didn't have the necessary brain chemistry, in inverted commas, to do the um, kind of high-level handling of the kind of chemistry that was described. Uh, I've since been correct in that regard, but certainly my own feeling with regards to spiders, and I've delved back into my times in Australia and talked to other Australian folk with regards to their experience with spiders, particularly with regards to playing with prey, indicates that spiders are um, somewhat devalued by this uh, deterministic approach uh, associated with how they construct their webs. And they may actually have... um, And this here is also supporting what Gerald is saying. I don't necessarily think intelligence is a bad thing in these circumstances, particularly with regards to dealing with abstract concepts and... uh, potentially uh, a teenage Dick Gordon with some kerosene. Um, But I think there is a a component to this which we um, trivialize with regards to just thinking that the spider has uh, neurons which have been worn over generations through an extended phenotype. I think this is a, a view of the natural world which would ultimately lead you to be bitten a number of times by Australian spiders and given a diversity of spiders, this kind of luxury would erode very quickly. Um, Gerald, have you thought any more with regards to this problem? I I just have very little experience with the uh, large-scale, the big, hairy spiders in Australia. So the only ones I know are, you know, little little tiny spiders. I I really can't imagine 
I, I can picture, of course, that, that a, a large spider might, might be a little more, you know, clever. Are, are, how clever are they, Tom? Did you play with them as a teenager? Did you put them in I, I, I had a, The funny thing is, I, I, um, I know a fellow who lived in Australia for his formative teenage years, and he has far stronger insect phobias than I do. Growing up around these kind of critters, for want of a better term, you just get used to them. My wife, for example, who's a, a native Southern Californian, cannot deal with any kind of insect life in her environment, bar very, as you say, very small, tame ones. Having camped in Australia and had these large spiders crawl across your face and also watch these large spiders kind of reel up and, and you know, go for lunging movements and attack various forms of prey. I mean, to see one of these spiders versus a, a large Australian praying mantis, you do get the impression that the, uh, you know, whatever they call it now, world wrestling entertainment has nothing on nature. And I think the, over, the oversimplification of thinking about the world in this kind of beautiful determinism, which ultimately I, I do get the sense that Dawkins seems to... It's not, it's not both. determinism. It's not determinism in the philosophical sense at all. Well, what you find is my use of the term determinism does map back onto the philosophical term determinism, but it's not immediate. What I'm saying is that you are describing a, a level of um, automation in you know, some extreme sense, which I wouldn't want to prescribe even well, yeah. to bacteria. Isn't it, isn't it like nature and nurture? Uh, in a sense, you know, we're just saying, uh, what, what could the spider learn in its lifetime? Perhaps uh, you know, they, they don't really learn at all. It's, it's inherited. I'm wondering about these spiders of yours. In, in Some of them are like as big as your hand, aren't they, in Australia? Certainly, and these, or larger. I, I mean, I, I think I circulated the photo of the spider eating the small bird. Or at least yeah, wrapping those, it up. Do those spiders build webs the size of trees, or what? Well, yeah. many of them don't even buy build. They build very well optimized webs for catching things, or at least getting them entrapped, and then they come around and cocoon the prey. So they're not, in fact, by, building huge webs. They're just building very sensitive webs, particularly they if still, you think they, about they, windy they still, environments. They still do build webs, though, even the larger ones. Well, you then have the funnel webs, which don't... I mean, again, my my knowledge isn't as uh, in the forefront as when I lived in Australia, but there are a wide variety of spiders that build a wide variety of webs, and what you see with a kind of cliched spoke web is certainly not the case with all the spiders in Australia. There are spiders that build funnel webs uh, and, you know, lure the prey into the webs. There are spiders, um, particularly ant-eating spiders, that don't even use webs fundamentally they go and, and you know catch ants by looking like ants and then you know wrap and devour i mean i think the diversity of spiders probably gives um you know maybe a greater sense of respect with regards to the possibility that they uh, you know they're the i think the, the point and this comes back to the discussion that we have with the cambrian explosion of roy plotnik is that intelligence is actually a survival mechanism and I think my concern with regards to the extended phenotype is that it doesn't have a means of, well, perhaps because our knowledge of intelligence as a kind of abstract form isn't as, uh, necessarily as great as our um, you know, description of the extended phenotype. But I think that intelligence is a, a critical part and certainly developing artificial life applications, and this is why I wanted to talk to Jeffrey in particular with regards to his spider simulation, you know, intelligence makes things just a little bit more interesting and perhaps a little bit more realistic in some regard. Tom, can I turn the question around? Could you act as, could you take your own human intelligence and act as intelligently as a spider in its situation? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very powerful question, and my, my immediate response would be probably no. Why not? Because I don't have, I mean, I think of this with regards to small animals. We have cats. And the way that cats approach things due to their size and due to the things that they have, like whiskers and probably better vision in certain circumstances, changes the way their intelligence operates. And I think being particularly um, for folks who listen to the podcast and don't have a sense of me, I'm six foot four and a rather large lumbering ape-like creature, um, <laughs> my own motion and the way, I mean, this is ultimately the phenomenology idea of intelligence that is as part of your embodied phenomenology, you have, um, you know, a different kind of intelligence than something that has eight legs and moves in particular directions. I wouldn't even know, you know, what extracting web silk would be like in that kind of environment. So I, 
I don't think I could. And what's interesting to me is there are algorithms that could move what I know in a broad kind of algorithmic sense to something that resembled spider intelligence a lot better. But it moves from this idea of extended phenotype as being purely with regards to genetics connecting neurons to an idea of epigenetics with regards to, you know, critters like spiders. And I think that's well, what interests me. Well, actually, that hits on an interesting point, uh, because until we can start taking something like a spider brain apart at the level where we can actually observe the connections between the nerve cells and, and, uh, and what kind of connections they are, we really are not in a position to compare two spider brains and say, well, are they both the same? They just, uh, you know, the wiring's just the same, and they just uh, react to whatever circumstances they're in. Or is learning going on in that brain? But that also discounts the multiplicity of solutions. I'm always concerned with regards to the, we haven't yet mo created the neural model description of what we try to do with artificial life or artificial intelligence. My feeling is that we have a wide variety of uh, optimizing and other algorithms at our disposal where we never actually need to model what goes on if we can create a black box that replicates what we see. Okay, look, I'm, I'm going to advertise something else. Uh, I heard a lecture this week by Jonathan Wolpaw, W-O-L-P-A-W. He's at... Uh, the Wadsworth Center, New York State Department of Health in, uh, in Albany, New York. And he's going to be on 60 Minutes on Sunday. So if you have access to that television program, you might want to see the interview. Now, what he's doing is taking people who have no motor control at all. In other words, they're totally paralyzed. Some of them even have lost eye mo the ability to flicker their eyelids. He is interfacing to their brains with uh, EEGs and then letting them train themselves so they can get full control of a computer keyboard directly f from the cortex in the brain. You know, this opens up for these people, you know, whatever we can open up through computers, enriches their experience and their interaction with the world. I guess what I'm saying is the if you take that spider brain, we don't know how much it can do. And I've always had the impression that we, we, we are generally underrating the intelligence of animals. Again, you know, a part of it is part of this attitude uh, about uh, not, not accepting the Darwinian view of the world and of life, and that is that we have evolved from these other organisms. At what point? You know, was it magically when we became Homo sapiens that we became intelligent? When did this intelligence start? You know, where are we going to cut it off if we look at our, uh, our relatives around, which all the other organisms are? So I, I'd be very hesitant not to assume a priori that the spider is an automaton and that I'm intelligent. I, I wouldn't make that argument any stronger than I say, you know, Tom, you're an automaton and I'm conscious. As far as I'm concerned, if I want to pursue this idea of making a spider um, a simulated spider that makes a web. I'm not so interested in, in the debate about whether the spider is intelligent or not. I mean, I would say it is uh, because it's making decisions based on its environment and it's coming up with, with something that's going to serve, it's, it's going to help it eat. But I also don't know how much I need to know about spiders' brains in order to do an artificial life simulation that then helps me think a little bit more about uh, how, how spiders might think. So in other words, I wonder if, um, if the artificial life simulation, even if it's not accurate and even if it's based on a slightly, even if, it's, even if the model is not correct, is part of, is part of the process of understanding uh, how spiders or any, any uh, intelligent being thinks and does, does what it does. So in other words, um, I'm, I'm just interested in trying out this, try, trying out a simulation and, and, and See, see what I learned from it. In a way, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, Occam's razor as well. You know, if you're able, if uh, Jeffrey's able to make a simulation based on you know some uh, algorithmics and, and uh, the result is uh, reasonably convincing, then um, then you know you you've got the uh, the simplest way to produce a certain behavior. Okay, well let me question the the concept reasonably convincing. To me, a an artificial 
life simulation that's convincing is one which generates novelty and allows the process of evolution to continue to what you might call higher levels of organization. It strikes me that most artificial life simulations I'm aware of saturate sort of at some point. They don't lead to the continual, uh, the continual generation of novelty of new ways of doing things. And, wh- and why do you think that is? That's a good hooker because the, the, I don't know. I think it's because they're not co-evolving with a billion other artificial life simulations. Possibly. And that, 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 would, that would become the, its environment for continually evolving. But most artificial life simulations are a tiny sliver of, of what's, what's really going on. And so they, they plateau. Yeah, I mean, the, the, of course, you know, one of the interesting questions, which we can't answer now, but if we come back 10 million years from now, we might have an inkling, and that is, will we evolve beyond what we are? I mean, or are we saturated some, in some sense? Mm. Well, I, I, at the moment, I would say phys- physically our evolution is not really proceeding at a great rate because we really take care of our sick. Well, I disagree with you. No. Uh, if you look at the rate of increase of the height of men, uh, it's remarkable over a period of a few generations, and uh, and it's driven by the selection by women for taller men. Uh, if you look at, uh, isn't that an assumption? Because uh, you know, for for example, if you look at Asia, Asian men are, are uh, you know increasing, have increased in size, really, really said subsequently, you know, so, uh, significantly in in a very short time, and it's probably something more related to diet. Well, you may be right. I don't know the I don't know the primary literature. Okay, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, you know straight you, you, you attributed things, you attributed a cause to it pretty quickly there. Well, well, I thought that we, well that that's what I that's what I've heard from geneticists. But now you're saying you know, and quite rightly, we should go back and check the primary literature and see how strong the argument is. I'm not arguing with you on that. You're, you may be right, but the. Uh, the idea that we're not subject to selective pressures is also an anecdotal conclusion, and I think it's probably wrong. But the- well, let's uh, let's look at something very specifically. Um, for example, uh, diabetes. Uh, you know, it, I, um, I a girlfriend of mine at high school. Her father had diabetes, and and he had a whole family of kids, and he wouldn't have survived otherwise. And for example, myself, I had uh, uh, acute appendicitis when I was about ten, and I would have. I would have not survived long, long enough to uh, to reproduce. So, you know, I had, there's, there's when I, was, I had pneumonia when I was nine months and probably wouldn't have survived if antibiotics hadn't just been yep. invented. But exactly. that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we're yeah. no longer evolving. We've got other kinds of pressures now. We've got other selections that are sure, some of them are coming from ourselves. Sure, but it doesn't mean it, it does mean that the culling is is dramatically changed. Oh yes, oh yes, the factors on which it's occurring have changed. But I, uh, but that it is. Continuing uh, is it's sort of subtle because it's statistical in its nature, and you know, as individuals, we don't see it. Well, there's a there's of course uh, if you you know there, there's an, an evolution of, of culture and an evolution of thought going on at a at a fairly high speed, and that's continuing uh, just you know at at a at a steadily oh, yeah. increasing rate because of the, the the levels and the forms of communication that, for example, what we're doing right now. Yes, <laughs> I agree. I agree. So there, there is evolution going on, but I just think, you know, physically the the culling of the human race has changed dramatically. I mean, we've dominated the planet, and and we tend to, uh, you know, take care of people who would otherwise have not survived. Well, let's oh, yeah. see if the polar if the polar ice caps melt. You know, maybe that'll change. <laughs> yeah. If you've got, uh, you, you'll uh, you'll survive. Care for people. You'll survive only if you've got web feet. Yeah, or if you live and on if you have web feet. Oh, you expecting? Well, no, no. You'll you'll survive if you if you buy real estate inland. Well, or if you have a good immune system, because because the cities will become swamped with muddy water and bacteria and, and microbes will will evolve or, or because you know or in the Netherlands you'll survive because you've invested heavily in a company that can build and, <laughs> there, there will uh, be no more the world. what Netherlands won't exist anymore <laughs> <laughs> oh sure it will it'll just be a, a, a large number of boats I think <laughs> so I think we've reached some kind of natural <laughs> high ground with regards to the discussion 
And also, making the point with regards to real estate, um, this is an important one uh, for me in particular because my wife and I have actually purchased a home in this evil United States of America as previously described. So we will be uh, moving into it over the next few weeks. What I will do is try to make uh, the Biota live recordings with the usual frequency, but whether or not they make it into the stream with the similar kind of frequency is yet to be determined. But certainly over the next probably two or three shows, that will be something that affects us. Now, our topic next week relates to the concept of an artificial life winter, and certainly from the discussion this evening, you may be wondering if such a winter would even be possible with the kind of discourse that is going on in this call. Well, I think it really relates to ideas of uh, commercializing artificial life, artificial life startups, and a lot of the narrative that obviously uh, folks such as Justin Lyon and uh, some of the folks in Boston were talking about, um, you know, in the Bioter podcast so far, and also with regards to the history that Gerald and I discussed uh, last episode, and Bruce Damer and I discussed the episode before. So our next recording on Friday, November 14th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Surviving an Artificial Life Winter, which ultimately is, I guess, a bit apocalyptic per the conclusion of this discussion. <laughs> Tom, Tom, if you've got a second, could you, for the people who don't know about it, give the exact title of the book and the publisher so they can... Look it up Certainly. Uh, there will be links in this podcast. In fact, I'm going to maintain on the podcast page. So if folks go to biota.org slash podcast, not only with regards to this show specifically, this is show number 36 for folks listening to it out of sequence, but also in the column along the side, I'm going to maintain a list of the books that folks who have participated are publishing in the near future or are being published in in the near future. And, uh, Dick, your book in particular will be top of the list. Okay, terrific. Knowing, knowing you guys has been wonderful because I think the artificial life perspective on these questions of uh, divinity, definition of life, evolution, etc., is going to become very central part of the debate, and, it, and this is the first time it's ever entered that debate. And clearly we can't agree on anything, so that ultimately <laughs> the debate. The next discussion will be on November 14th, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific. Now, we may actually be getting copies of uh, the book as giveaways. My hope is that we'll get two copies, and when those two copies arrive, I will mention the, uh, the contest that I'd like to put out to get bio to live participation uh, from the broader community in order to get your hands on copies of this very book that we've been discussing this evening. So thank you all for participating this evening, and thanks to folks for listening in.